0: Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Trexler back on the podcast. And in part one, we're diving into all things relating to hard gainers. That's hard gainers in terms of struggling to gain weight. And we talk about the real definition of that and why that might be the case. And also hard gainers from the case of maybe not responding as well to weight training. A really, really interesting discussion. I definitely recommend you stick around for both part one and part two. And as a reminder, we actually email you guys who are on the email list every week with some valuable educational content and i think there's some stuff on there that you're going to really really enjoy and you don't want to miss out on especially if you enjoy the sort of discussions we have on this podcast you'll find a lot of value from that email list we don't spam you with tons of rubbish don't you worry about that it's all educational and valuable content so definitely look in the description to find our email list and sign up to that if you're interested in that sort of thing without further ado let's get into the show Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Trexler back on the podcast. Uh, I don't need to, well, I suppose I didn't give you a formal introduction last time. I actually can't remember if I did, but I, I don't think so. I think you're a repeat enough guest, Eric, that I don't need to do that sort of thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no point. I, my name's Eric and I'm here. That, that, that's all <laughs> the introduction that, that's necessary.
0: I uh, hear you are just a sellout and uh, my fitness pal, and you're just
1: riding their kind of success and trying to launch your own thing. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. Macro Factor is taking the nutrition app world by storm. That's for sure. <laughs> and I, I, in all honesty, actually, I have um, only heard good things about
0: Macro Factor, not that we're, I didn't intend to really talk about Macro Factor here at all, but this is only positive uh, endorsement for you because I actually had one client, he was so. He loves the stuff you and uh, Greg do. And he was so invested. He was like, I'm going to do the stuff we're doing, but also I'm going to track it along macro factor and see what numbers that's giving me. So it's actually been quite interesting to see like
1: what my predictions of a coach have been versus the AI that you have within the app. It's been yeah, pretty you good. Th- you, you think that's interesting. Imagine uh, for me, I, I was working with my own clients who were using macro factor uh, and I wrote the logic for it And then it becomes a really interesting thing of like, is your systematic logic consistent with your individualized person by person logic? You know, like it was, it was, it's very strange to compete against a software that you wrote (laughs) the logic for and say like, am I giving the exact same recommendation in all cases uh, that this logic would lead to, Uh, which was a very fascinating experience. And how was that? What was the outcome? Well, it was it was good, but, uh, you know, like, to be honest, uh, I think the software was better than me, <laughs> To be honest, because like the thing that's nice about software is it has the extra insight from the expenditure algorithm that without peeking into the app, you have to kind of eyeball it as a coach. Um, the thing about macro factors that the expenditure algorithm is really sophisticated. The weight trending algorithm is very, very nice. And so sometimes, you know, my eyes might lead me in a certain direction and I'll be like, wait a minute, let me let me see your weight trend curve and your expenditure curve. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a little bit of a noise rather than signal that I'm reacting to. So generally speaking, they're very compatible, very, very similar. But there were a couple instances where there were just like minor disagreements in changes. And ultimately, when I saw what the software was doing, I was like, shit, the software's better than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, cause it doesn't get, you know, it, it doesn't kind of fall into patterns. It, it doesn't, uh, you know, take mental shortcuts that the human brain would take and, and it can right. sort through the, the signal and the noise better than the naked eye. So yeah, that, that was an interesting experience though.
0: Does the, uh, I, I actually haven't. Uh, use the app yet i do intend to um i at some point it's just i'm so set i imagine a lot of people are like this, so set in their ways of using something like my fitness pal for so many years and it's worked that there's that yeah. i don't know what there's a term for it in like economics or something where it's like that switching cost or whatever mm-hmm. it might be um but with uh the app can people input like their level of accuracy or precision in terms of the numbers they're putting if they're like guesstimating things or like they know they haven't been quite on it on and on top of things? Because I imagine as a coach, like this is something I ask my clients is, okay, you give me these numbers, but how precise are they?
1: Yeah, so what we do is uh, because we have some nice uh, trending and kind of imputation functionality, we basically say, if you think that you can get within a good 20 or 30% in terms of your total calories for the day, go ahead and log it. Uh, if if you if it's just way off and you can't even guess and you don't think you can get with that level of precision, just leave it blank. And we'll use some imputation methods to kind of sort through that that missingness in the data. Uh, so we we do support full day fasting, not that it's like some kind of like gimmicky recommendation. You know, I, I know fasting has kind of become a bit of a fad in the nutrition world, especially like longevity focused people. We wanted to accommodate that, you know, so what we have is you can leave a whole day blank in the app in terms of nutrition tracking and just track your body weight and it'll sort through the data and and basically say, okay, let let's piece this all together based on previous history. Um, but if if you truly do a day of fasting, then you just check a little box and say, hey, I truly ate zero calories this day. So, you know, that the app can kind of get that signal and, and move forward accordingly. But yeah, so we don't have like a like a sliding scale type of deal. Um, and, and the reality is, you know, our, our app is very much focused on uh, you know, we we have the expenditure algorithm that is deterministic based on cumulative over time, looking at trends in uh, changes in body weight, body composition, and nutrition intakes. So the reality is, you know, just a little bit of error here and there isn't really going to throw the the algorithms off to a meaningful extent. So we haven't had a need to say, hey, were you eighty percent accurate or eighty seven percent accurate? Because over time, you know, that that stuff does kind of get get uh, smoothed out with the, uh, the the calculations and the smoothing.
0: That makes that makes a ton of sense, and a lot of the things you were describing there sound like things and actions that you would appropriately take, or I would at least as a coach be looking over the longer term trends. And like, if someone is just like very, like, I don't know, they rate a two out of five in terms of accuracy. I'm like, well, it's almost in not useful data to a certain degree. It's just like we have to just Restrict, check yeah. body weights and things like this. So that makes a ton of sense. Um, that wasn't uh, a planned kind of discussion around the app, but I'm glad we did it. Cause I think uh, there are probably, well, the, the listeners here are, prime candidates to be users of the app and like i said i've only heard really positive things and i also like much prefer kind of the stuff that you're promoting through the app than what my fitness pal does in terms of if you just sign up to my fitness pal it's not giving you like the recommendations it gives you are things that i would generally not advise people do in terms of those general gen- general numbers whereas you guys are much more evidence-based in that regard so it's definitely something yeah. i would be
1: more pushing people towards well yeah i appreciate the shout out and uh the unscheduled detour but (laughs) i will say the last thing i'll I'll mention about it is uh, i I know there's a lot of that um the term we use sometimes is stickiness you start using a tracking app and there's kind of that sunk cost where you're like well i'm used to this workflow for tracking i'm used to the analytics i get in this particular app uh, so we definitely get that but if you're curious you know we do have a 2 week free trial so you can take it for a spin see if you like it and if you don't no big deal you, you can stick with what you're using perfect nice
0: guys get on that uh, and yeah to get on to our topic we're going to talk a bit about hard gainers so i think everyone listening knows or has at least has an idea of what they think a hard gainer is and i think this is one it's actually just had a lot of sticking power. I think it, it's not a, th- a thing that kind of disappeared. I think some people might regard it as a myth, but I think it has that sticking power for a reason because there's there's something there. So I think probably best to start with to just defining what at least what you would say a hard gainer would be, Eric.
1: Yeah, I think there's really two major characteristics of a hard gainer. Um generally speaking if someone says i'm a hard gainer what that usually means is they have uh, tried to have you know a, a very focused period of muscle building you know they, they have uh, very intentionally focused on trying to build muscle uh, and have run into a lot of friction in that process and you know from their perspective apparently more friction than others seem to experience you know they they might you know, maybe they and their training partner both say, okay, let's get huge, let's start bulking, their training partner starts gaining weight and muscle mass very readily, and they are really struggling to get the needle moving. Uh, so so the two characteristics that that often will appear, one can be very easily identified. And that's just, I simply can't gain weight in in pounds in kilograms, like my scale weight will not budge. Uh, even though I'm eating as much as I can possibly try to eat, I feel gross, You know, just like constantly full, lethargic often comes as an extension of that. So yeah, people are like, I am trying to eat as much as I possibly can, and I can't gain just any weight at all. Uh, so that that's a very obvious um, uh, scenario where where someone would say, I'm a hard gainer. Another scenario that's a little bit more difficult is not necessarily an inability to gain weight in general but a, a really immense challenge when it comes to gaining muscle, right? So you might have someone who says, yeah, I've, I've bulked in the past and I gained 20 pounds and then I did a 20 pound cut and I ended up literally in the exact same spot, right? Like, so, so they start to say, you know, I, I try these bulks and I can gain weight, but every time I do it, it appears to be Virtually all fat mass, right, and so so there's really these two different components, which one is resistance to weight gain in general, which is as a nutrition guy, that's where I, I tend to spend a lot of my focus, but the other element is just kind of in the spectrum of people who are really high responders versus low responders to resistance training, people who fall on the low responder end of that spectrum might notice. Even if I do have the ability to gain weight, it just doesn't seem to be muscle, you know. So, so those are kind of the two most common uh, scenarios for a hard gainer. And I think, uh,
0: I think that makes complete sense. That the two angles in terms of like resistance to weight gain, or and or kind of that non-responder or less of a responder to resistance training. And I think, um, at least, uh, yeah, if we start with the nutritional side, what leads to someone being like that? Because I think we all know someone who seemingly i guess it's that old they can eat what they want and they don't put on weight i guess it's that sort of similar scenario with this person who seems to like really try and eat enough and yeah. they struggle to what leads to a person being like that
1: well i think there are two things that could be going on and i i assume in many cases that both things are going on uh so one thing would be uh the metabolic response to overfeeding um so there are some studies where they bring people into a lab in really tightly controlled conditions and they say you know we're going to overfeed you by a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of extra calories per day in a controlled manner and we're going to see how much weight you gain and some people gain way more weight than others and it, it it appears to be that in these in this scenario where they are certain that all of the food is being consumed, there are some people who have, large up regulations in total daily energy expenditure and they basically are just burning off a lot of those extra calories it might not always be all of the extra calories but i mean the, the the variation we see in weight gain is really considerable so there are clearly some people who have what we would call a spendthrift metabolic phenotype where if you overfeed them from their natural kind of resting body weight uh, they upregulate energy expenditure and offset a lot of that energy intake, and they're very resistant to fat gain. Other people with more of a thrifty metabolic phenotype, thrifty, indicating that they're really good at saving, right? So when you overfeed them, they very efficiently just shuttle those extra calories into long-term fat storage. They, they gain fat and total weight uh, very, very readily. Uh, But the big caveat there that I mentioned is this is overfeeding from a natural kind of typical body weight. Uh, If you were to bring those same individuals into the lab, if you were to say, okay, we're going to bring these people in and do a 30-pound cut and then do an overfeeding study, I think the results would look very, very different. And the people who would normally be resistant to fat gain would actually be very susceptible to regaining fat mass that was recently lost. So that's a huge caveat. But in most cases, the typical hard gainer is someone who, frankly, is naturally uh, quite lean or slender by default, you know, so they're usually going into it from a natural body weight for them, and saying, I've been skinny my whole life, I want to get big. Uh, and in many cases, we will see that those people who are who are naturally thin, very intuitively. Uh, are naturally pretty resistant to fat gain. And they do experience those increases in energy expenditure. And it's basically the inverse of metabolic adaptation. You know, instead of conserving energy, when energy intake goes down, they aggressively increase expenditure when it goes up. Now, how do you make yourself be one of those spendthrift individuals? If you're someone who wants to stay lean, you can't, (laughs) you know, we're, we're talking about just luck of the draw here or whether it's lucky or unlucky really just depends on your perspective. You know, people who really struggle with fat loss, always wish for a certain phenotype and then people who struggle with weight gain, wish for the other, right? So there's both sides of the coin here and it, they're, they're spectrums, right? Or are spectra. So you're going to fall not usually most people are not going to fall on the extreme end of that thrifty to spend thrift spectrum. They're going to fall usually somewhere in the middle. Uh, so that's the one thing is energy expenditure. The other thing that that is probably going into this uh, struggle with trying to intentionally gain weight, I think has a lot to do with um, uh, just the intrinsic systems that regulate body weight within the individual. And I think to be even more specific, I think the neurophysiological regulation of energy intake is a really big thing. So uh, within the Mass Research Review, we had a great uh, guest article a few years back that was all about the neurophysiological regulation of energy intake and body weight. And it's very clear that there are several different uh, unique systems that, that are governing hunger, satiety, uh, reward responses to food intake. so just the the pleasurable experience of enjoying a large or particularly palatable meal. There are all these integrated systems that generally speaking are feeding back in into the hypothalamus. And it's it can be very difficult to override those systems, right? They, they're kind they kind of all have their own little calibration point. And I think in many cases, people who struggle to gain weight, what we probably see is that those systems are just tuned to a slightly different kind of natural calibration point, right? So some people have a very pronounced reward response when they have a hyperpalatable meal. Other people are like, oh, yeah, cheesecake is nice, but I can take it or leave it. It's not that big of a deal, right? So some people, it's like a life-changing experience when when they have that meal. And it's not because they are – it's not some kind of personality trait that goes into that. It's a neurophysiological response. Uh, so uh, the the same thing goes when it comes to satiety management, hunger management, I think in, in many cases, uh, especially in the future, as we look into this stuff more and more, I do think we're going to find that a lot, a lot of what goes into where a person's kind of, quote unquote, natural body weight um, happens to fall. A lot of it's going to have to do with uh, habits and behaviors, but but a large portion of that, I believe, is going to come down to how these different systems that are all integrated, you know, to what point are they are they calibrated in, in terms of modulating hunger, satiety, and reward responses? So, someone who struggles with weight gain, I would expect. Um, You know, those systems are kind of innately calibrated in a situation where hunger tends to be lower than average. uh, Satiety responses tend to be a little bit higher than average. And the reward response to a hyper palatable meal is probably a little bit lower compared to their peers. And and I think that can be an extremely, extremely powerful thing. I mean, I I had a buddy in high school who, you know, we we would always live together and we'd hang out all the time. So we shared a lot of meals together and things like that. Uh, I usually could gain weight pretty readily uh and he struggled big time and it, it was funny because I would watch him and you know at that time when you're 16 you know at least for me I, I wasn't exactly as understanding I kind of didn't have any any scientific basis just like well whatever you try to do will work if you do it hard enough and with enough you know intentional effort so I used to be like dude, you act like you're eating all this food, but like I'm with you like most days of the week and you'll eat a ton on Monday and it'll suppress your appetite so much that you don't eat again until like Thursday. And I'm being (laughs) hyperbolic, but you get the idea. It's like, he's like, oh man, I had this huge meal. I'm like, yeah, that was four days ago, dude. And like, you've been grazing for the last three. So uh, in hindsight, I can look at that and say, okay, like he, he was making the intentional effort to overfeed, but because of his hunger and satiety regulation, you know, things were really constrained for literally days afterward to kind of get back to that calibration point. And whereas some people can override hunger and satiety signals by simply opting for more hyper palatable meals for other people, you know, that that ability of the reward centers to override the hunger and satiety centers is blunted because their neurophysiological response to a hyperpalatable hyperpalatable meal just isn't that extreme. It's not that pronounced. So long answer there, but, but I think that's what it comes down to is, um, energy expenditure and neurophysiological regulation of these integrated systems. And, uh, I'm sure we'll get into it as we go, but I I think that, um, in, in the bodybuilding world, evidence-based fitness world, people talk about set points with body weight. You know, I mentioned calibration point. I neglected to use the word set point or settling point, uh, on purpose. Uh, so people talk about set points, they talk about settling points, um, but I prefer to visualize these challenges within the uh, the context of the dual intervention point model. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But uh, there's a great review paper by uh, John Speakman and colleagues where they look at the true official set point theory, and they say this doesn't really work out if, if you kind of test it against real world observations. It falls short. It's not very good. Uh, settling point theory, uh, as it's truly written, again falls very, very short. The set point theory is way too biologically driven, without really a lot of room for environmental pressures and behavioral factors. Uh, the settling point theory is the opposite. It, it's great at accommodating environmental factors and behavioral factors, but it has it leaves little room for for like biological, physiological, regulatory intervention or, or influence. Um. The dual intervention point model is a beautiful way of kind of merging the two concepts together in a cohesive way that actually ref- reflects the world around us, which is good for a theoretical model. Um, and it's people are going to hear that and say, wow, that's a revelation because everyone I know talks about set point and settling points. I think most people in our world who talk about settling points are actually talking about the dual intervention point model, but with the wrong terminology. Yeah, I think I have certainly
0: done that. I normally oh, talk about... I have about... too.
1: Uh, <laughs> I have Eric Helms. had Literally all of us have. Yeah. It wasn't until I, I you know, started digging into it and found this paper and I said, oh shit, I, I've been using words wrong. So yeah, I absolutely have as well.
2: Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger.
0: I would say like a settling range, which it is exactly describing what that model is in terms of that upper and lower intervention point is kind of Mm -hmm. that range of body fat that the body's happy at. It's kind of homeostasis type of thing. And then it's these upper and lower points that then are kind of where these challenges come in, like you mentioned. And just as a slight summary of what kind of what you were saying there, if you are within this kind of this zone of body fat that the body's happy at, you have these people that have these kind of spendthrift or kind of thrifty more so uh, kind of phenotypes, which influence then, whether or not they're more of a hard gainer or not so you instigate like a 300 calorie surplus to that kind of spend thrift he suddenly gobbled up 200 calories worth of it and now it's barely a surplus whereas the other thrifty is like "Yep, yeah, i'll take that on we gain it at a nice steady pace so yeah. this is why it, i mean it doesn't really change anything P- pretty much you just have to assess body weight trends and then make the manipulations but it's just whether or not you want to be that person who's able to eat more and If you're probably if you're spendthrift, you get a bit frustrated with how difficult it can be to gain, like you said, whereas if you're thrifty, you're probably like, man, I wish I could eat more (laughs) because it just it works in harmony that way against what you want. Your biological systems kind of work against you (laughs) in that sense, which makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I I think the important thing to really highlight here um, is when we talk about the dual intervention point model, we're talking about ranges in which we encounter friction. And friction is different from insurmountable brick walls that cannot be broken through. Right. And so what the dual intervention point model suggests is that there's this range of, you know, body weight or body fat levels at which we feel pretty comfortable. And, and like I said, that's probably a convergence of the calibration of our hunger system, satiety system, and reward system all kind of interacting to some extent. Uh, so there's this range of body fat levels, let's say, in which we feel pretty comfortable. Uh, there's an upper end of that range and a lower end of that range. And when we are moving within that range, we generally have success and we generally feel pretty okay. Right. And and so that makes sense because we've looked at short-term interventions, uh, and even longer term interventions where people by making behavioral adjustments, nutrition adjustments, training adjustments, they can travel within that range without running into a tremendous amount of friction. It's not that unheard of to talk to someone who says, yeah, I made some changes, lost about 10 pounds. I feel great. And I've, I've maintained this weight loss for five years. That's, that's not a super rare thing. When you start talking about losing 15% of your body weight, then it becomes a little bit more rare to hear about those super long-term success stories, but they still occur, right? But, uh, you know, some of these small fluctuations within this upper and lower intervention point within this comfortable range, these things can be be done by some habitual behavioral interventions with a high degree of effectiveness. But what happens is the lower intervention point is, you know, when we start getting And this is going to vary from person to person. But when we start to get below a body fat level, that's comfortable for us. um, And like, I know for me, there's a certain weight, you know, when I start getting below it, I feel it, you know, hunger, satiety, start to get a little bit out of whack. I might feel a little bit more lethargic. We, We run into that area where we say, okay, I I was cruising at the beginning of my diet, but now I'm feeling it. There's friction and that friction. You can push through it, but you will feel it. Right. So there's this regulatory mechanism that kicks in and the the model supposes based on kind of evolutionary biology. Okay. What's happening here is we are starting to interact with our mechanisms to prevent starvation just from a a biological survival uh, oriented perspective the opposite is the upper intervention point and so i think this is where you know some people might say oh i want to bulk up and they gave five, they gain five pounds no problem 10 pounds no problem once they get to 15 they start to say i cannot even fathom eating more like i feel sick to my stomach. Every time I eat, this is gross. I'm lethargic. I, this I'm running into some, and, and the body weight just isn't moving the way it used to be. Right. So you start running into the same kind of friction on the upper end. Can you get through it? Sure. And, and we'll talk about ways you can do that. I'm sure. Uh, but, but the, the idea there, uh, as the model, uh, proposes is that, uh, ultimately being, ha- having excessive adiposity or excessive body weight as a biological, uh, animal that could be hunted uh, is not ideal, you know. So it, humans, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, need a certain level uh, or, or prefer to have a certain level of mobility for survival purposes. And, and the idea is that we increase our risk of predation of essentially becoming somebody's dinner uh, if, if we start to accumulate weight at a rate that that starts to influence our our mobility and ambulatory capacity. So that's the concept. Is that we can absolutely fluctuate within this range without a whole lot of friction. Um, It it takes some intention and effort, but, but not like, you know, major physiological friction. But once we start to get outside of these boundaries, that's where we start to uh, to to run into some challenges. And what I would expect is that someone who is a, a spendthrift individual perhaps identifies as a bit of a hard gainer, their kind of normal resting state is probably relatively close to their upper intervention point and their upper intervention point is the reason they're closer to it is because it's probably just set a little bit lower than the average person. Uh, conversely, people who, who really struggle with weight loss, they tend to gravitate toward a higher body weight. And when they try to lose fat, it it becomes immensely difficult very quickly. I expect that their lower intervention point is kind of naturally just higher than others. And their kind of typical resting spot is just relatively close to it when compared to their peers. So this model, like, like we said, it's, it's reframing stuff that we've already kind of embraced in the fitness world as kind of misusing the term settling point uh but I, I do think it's valuable to look at this model sometimes and say what am i experiencing and how would i make sense of it based on this concept because because i think it can be a very uh comprehensive model that that helps you make sense of what you're experiencing or what your client's experiencing yeah that that makes a, a
0: load of sense in terms of like we all have this kind of range but those who are more spendthrift or oh, sorry the more hard gainers and spendthrift are probably going to have this kind of it's set at a lower body fat or lower body weight uh, for them whereas the more thrifty they're kind of they're always striving to be that kind of on the leaner side but it's they struggle with that necessarily so that makes a lot of sense in terms of the range itself do you have a theorized kind of i don't know percentage of body weight range or is it like a tight range or wide range will that i i presume as well it would differ person to person
1: Absolutely not. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I know everyone in the fitness world is different. Um, there there are some folks who are like, you know what, in the interest of practical application, I'm going to boldly put numbers out there and deal with the consequences later. I'm very much the opposite side of the spectrum where I'm like, until I feel very, very certain, I'm just going to let that one go. Um, but I, I do think if, if someone twisted my arm, I, I think we could look at possibly at the weight loss literature and start to say okay well what are the success rates long term losing 5% of body weight versus 10% of body weight versus 15 versus 20 you know i i think the fact that you know we often call a clinically useful or clinically meaningful weight loss uh in, in the overweight and obese population as being about 10% of body weight in many cases the long term success rates uh in 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 that particular uh literature uh, are a little bit underwhelming uh you know they, they they um you know people throw around the numbers about the likelihood of returning to baseline body weight and and the the probability is higher than we would like um unfortunately so I I I, def, I think we could lean if, if someone twisted my arm, I could I would say, yeah, I'll go dig into that literature and give you a percentage number. I assume it would be less than 10 percent based on that, but uh, I, I'm not gonna commit to any number until I put in just indefensible amount of work into digging into that literature and figuring out what it looks like. but I, I think um, I think it generally is broadly pretty tight. I like. I know for me personally, if I don't do a damn thing aside from just lift and eat comfortably, I tend to gravitate around one seventy-five. And I can tell you, if I start getting below one sixty, it starts to get really, really tough. Uh, And if I get above one ninety, I can hardly eat a meal. So for me personally, I have about a fifteen a fifteen pound range in either direction from baseline, where I feel pretty comfortable moving with behavioral adjustments that do take intention and consistency, but I don't run into physiological friction. Uh, whereas once I go more than 15 pounds down or more than 15 pounds up, I start to run into challenges. But I also am not so uh, brazen and self-absorbed as to suggest that that generalizes to everybody. you know. And, and I think that's a major thing you have to consider if you're in the coaching business is making sure that you don't jump to those assumptions. Cause I've had some clients who it's like, I mean, their weight is, it's like clockwork within like a very narrow range. And once we start trying to move it, we get friction immediately in just about any direction, you know? Um, and, And so it's important not to dismiss those experiences with clients. And I've also had clients who it's like, we just start going and going and going and we really don't run into a lot of friction until we're getting like shredded. So I think it's important to recognize upper intervention point, lower intervention point where we are relative to both of those at what we consider our natural body weight. That's probably going to have a lot to do with our habits and behaviors, like where we fall in that range. Uh, But it differs from person to person. So you shouldn't be surprised if you're working with a client and you say, oh crap, it looks like we were already just nestled right against that lower intervention point before we even started. Uh, So, That's important to recognize, you know, where you are, where you tend to kind of settle within those points is going to vary based on a lot of habitual and behavioral type stuff. Uh, It's important to recognize that the upper intervention point and lower intervention point might be shifted from person to person. And it's also important to recognize that the distance between them can be highly variable. That's not based on research, that's based on uh, practice in, in my experience. So whether or not that's good to have a tight range, it it really comes down to one question, how do you like your natural body weight? <laughs> yeah. You know, and like, if you love your natural body weight, and you've got a tight range, like, dude, you're set. It means that like, you're just not going to fluctuate much from there, no matter what you do, uh, which is great. But but for for someone who's unhappy with their kind of typical point that they tend to settle at, having that tight range, all of a sudden becomes a really cumbersome thing. So with, with these types of things that it, it, it's, it's a fascinating model that I think does a great job describing the world around us. Um, but what I think is really fascinating about it is the pros and cons of it are totally based on your 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 personal perspective and what you wish to achieve. So it's this kind of unbiased set of of uh intervention points that says, hey, whether you like it or not, here's what you've got to work with and and how you react to that is is kind of uh, up to you.
2: Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't, though. It's reality, and we know how to do it, and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini cup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do but the best thing is that you can start whenever you want the mini cup movement is open 24 7 so if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up hit the link in the description below so let's revive stronger together
0: very well answered and i appreciate the yeah just being honest about we, we don't know this range and in my experience very similar to yours i think uh, for, for most of my clients, it has been like a five to ten percent range where we start to kick a fuss if we go far to much more out of those kind of ranges. But uh, I do have more often than not, it's a case of quite few people they have a lower intervention point, but that upper intervention point is kind of comes into question of you could just keep pushing them and they keep eating. They've got a great appetite, past a body fat that someone would they would want to necessarily be at. And I guess evolutionary speaking, maybe. The, I guess that might make more sense or at least in our modern day environment, that might be what's influencing it because there's so many highly palatable foods and just ways to be sedentary and that sort of thing. So it's more that side of it, which maybe has influenced the upper end intervention.
1: Yeah. And I just, I wasn't... if people are watching video, I wasn't just like texting my friend. I was curious, you know, because I mentioned 175 plus or minus 15. I was like, what percentage is that? And it ends up being about 8.6%. Yeah. So just under that 10% number. Um, so yeah, I, that is one piece of data confirming my general hunch that the number is probably shy of 10%, just looking at the literature. But Again, I'm I'm going to quickly scamper away from that number and never ever put my name on it publicly. Uh, but but <laughs> anecdotally, that that's about what I experience.
0: And I guess if people are wondering, like, how do I identify if I'm in this range? What are the some of the things that you think people should not feel or they should feel in
1: this sort of period of time? Well, I I think you know this range. It's important to recognize it. It's it is descriptive rather than actionable right so it's not like we're saying oh you know you're outside of the range therefore do the next three you know things in in response to that right so it helps us understand what we're experiencing but but i don't know if we should plan necessarily around it because ultimately our goals are going to be independent of where our in many cases where upper and lower intervention points are the, the only exception is if you're talking about someone who's kind of general population trying to diet down to a lower lower body weight for health purposes i think it would make sense to work with them and say okay well based on our experience of being you know going from 190 to 180 1 you know 90 80 76 so at what point here did we start to really feel crappy right and so you, you start to identify what's the lowest weight that we could very feasibly maintain in the long term and be comfortable so there i guess there is some application there um but but i would say you know when you're wrestling with your lower intervention point uh some signs you would look out for is you know perhaps even though you have a pretty um uh, you have a pretty reasonable caloric deficit you might start running into some symptoms of like relative energy deficiency in sport so um, some of the psychological things you know, you might notice that you're uh, you have a little bit more food fixation psychologically you might notice that hunger and satiety start to get disproportionately out of whack you may notice potentially some changes in endocrine profile in terms of like thyroid hormone and sex hormones maybe that uh, kind of depends how lean you're getting but you know, we we often talk about how natural bodybuilders at a certain point, you start to feel kind of crappy. And then at a certain point, you start to feel very shitty. Right? right. And so lower intervention point, I think, is where kind of crappy begins in my in my uh, rough estimation. I know that it sounds like a precise diagnostic when I say kind of crappy, but it's <laughs> actually very vague. Uh, I'm being a smart ass here. But, you know, you know, when, when you start to get to that point where like, man, I, I know I, I'm dieting, so I should feel hungry. But my hunger starts to feel like it's kind of ramping up disproportionately. And yeah. the the extent to which I feel lethargic seems to be ramping up disproportionately. Maybe you're noticing metabolic adaptation, a reduction of energy expenditure is starting to kick in. And you're noticing every time I reduce my calories by 150, I'm getting I seem to be getting less bang for my buck when I make those changes. Like when we start to see those types of things happening, it might be an indicator that we're starting to drift Beyond that lower intervention point Um, with the upper intervention point, I I think it's kind of the inverse when we start to recognize like, you know, I've been making kind of linear calorie increases, but it looks like I'm just not gaining weight at the rate I used to. Or, um, yeah, I knew I'd be full, but this is I'm starting to run into more of a brick wall. Uh, when it comes to just like trying to get the next meal in, um, you know, you, you have to start pulling more of those creative levers of overcoming the fact that you have like no appetite when when appetite really starts to get just totally decimated. That's probably when we're starting to hit that upper intervention point. So I, I know that those are vague metrics, but I think it's one of those things you kind of know it when you see it, because as a here's the the easiest heuristic you could use as a coach, when you start working way harder, (laughs) that usually means, you know, like when you, when you start saying, okay, now we need to pull out all the stops when it comes to uh, behavioral stuff, uh, you know, psychological support, you know, when when you start really pulling out the entire bag of tricks and tools, um, that usually indicates, you know, it's not just, hey, let's drop a little bit of carbohydrate here, a little bit of fat. Now it's, OK, we need to start focusing on coupling habits together. We need to start focusing on, you know, taking a walk here, or, like for weight loss purposes. OK, what are some behavioral habitual interventions we can use to supplement so that this isn't just sheer willpower and targets? We have to start getting into some of those other things to overcome a lot of this friction pertaining to, you know, uh, adaptations and energy expenditure, hunger satiety regulation, things like that. I think that makes a ton of sense
0: in that it's not like a precise thing but I think a lot of people can relate to how hard they have to try to move the needle in a certain direction and like you called it kind of those frictions it's not like a hard stop it's just yeah. suddenly things are getting disproportionately harder to where they were before and I guess that um, has to fall on a background of you've already got kind of your basics in check in terms of like if your sleep's just terrible you're sleeping an hour a night or something well you're probably going to feel things are going to be harder no matter what but you kind of you just have the basics in check in terms of like you have your nutritional timing somewhat there you're not eating kind of a know one meal and you're like oh I'm stuffed I don't know what it could be for that individual but you've got kind of some of the basics in check and then yeah. yeah like you said once the basics are there maybe you have to start looking at some of the other things and to bring it back to kind of hard gainers as we're talking about because I threw us down the road of uh this this model but i, I find it yeah. fascinating because i when you are a coach you work with so many different people that you see that the where people lie on this on this thing and actually one question before i do move on to hard gainers because i think people will be thinking this and i hate if i didn't ask it can you can you move this can, can someone who they're kind of i guess most people are thinking i'm kind of up here generally i feel better at higher body fats higher body weights personally, I would like to be on the leaner side. Can someone get to this lower point and maintain kind of in a a lower range where they feel okay? Or are they always
1: going to feel a bit more friction that's trying to like pull them back? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm not familiar with strong evidence indicating that you can truly change this. Of course, one of the major roadblocks for obtaining that type of evidence is that these are vague concepts, rather, you know, you can't bring someone in a baseline and say, okay, we're going to do this blood assay and determine your lower intervention point, yeah. right? So even if you were to move it, it'd be hard to say it moved. What we have to rely on is just kind of vague, you know, general indicators that someone lost a, a significant or gained a significant amount of weight and was able to maintain it for a long time. You know, we have to kind of look at the outcome and then work back from there. The fact that um most of the long-term predictors of for example weight loss success, you know maintaining a weight loss for a long period of time the reason I keep going back to weight loss is because to lean on the science of weight regulation is to focus on weight loss because that's the the major public health concern that gets studied so much right um, but but you know when we look at what is predictive of long-term successful weight loss maintenance it's almost always behavioral it's almost always uh, at that intersection of behavior and psychology. So, accept acceptance-based approaches to hunger, um, accepting that you know the previous lifet- lifestyle and behaviors, which may have been quite sedentary and included a lot of social eating and, and really high-calorie foods in social settings. There are certain elements of of um, you know those kind of behavioral factors that. It seems like letting those go and resetting some of your habits and behaviors seems to be critical. You know, so consistent weight monitoring, maintaining high levels of physical activity, keeping an eye on your calorie intake consistently over time, those types of things. It it seems that because behaviors are so much more predictive of long term success than, you know, weird little physiological hacks, I'm inclined to believe that. We probably don't have a tremendous amount of autonomy when it comes to manually shifting our intervention points, but that doesn't mean we're screwed in the long term. What it means is we are better off focusing on how we can reset and reestablish our habits and behaviors so that the act of maintaining a body weight outside of our 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 you know, dual intervention point range What we need to do is make that more automatic. It can't continue to be this straight-up battle of willpower versus physiology because that's a tough battle to fight for 30 years, and usually the physiology wins. But if you can say, well, instead of willpower, let's, let's alleviate the need to lean on that by focusing on habits and behaviors, and and let's automate some of this stuff. If you can do that and start to establish a set of patterns and behaviors that is actually compatible with maintaining this different body weight, I think that 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 ultimately is the blueprint for success and tells us that even if you are slightly outside of that intervention point range, there are ways to do this without making it a constant struggle that is totally dependent on willpower. And, and I think that that is really where success lies. Um, you know, whether or not we can shift those intervention points a little bit, um, we don't seem to have any reliable predictors of of weight change success that are independent of some of those bigger picture psychological and behavioral elements. No, I think that makes complete sense. And
0: in my experience of. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive
2: Stronger. My name is Pesca Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably, roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another—a really cool community for people within our little niche. It is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions. The community aspect—we have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. It's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library.
0: The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go
2: through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. and I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.